also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. With the growth of historic Christianity, there has developed a Christian cultural nomenclature from biblical literacy expressed by ideas, terms, vocabulary, phrases. You've probably heard of this one. I mean, this one goes way back to the days of the pilgrims and the Puritans uh, in New England. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. I expect you've heard that before. That's from the New England Primer. But also, if you were to go, not now, not on your handheld devices, but if later today you were to go to Wikipedia, you could look up a glossary of Christianity from A to Z. But before you do that, I want to suggest something to you. Here is a, an opportunity that you can engage one another, husband and wives, parents, kids, uh, friends, sitting around, and you don't have to do this exhaustively. Maybe someone can just call out a letter and each of you give a response, a biblical glossary. A, uh, what comes to mind? Uh, atonement, anointed one, antichrist. Uh, B, baptism, beatitudes, blessing, betrayal. C, Christ, Christian, covenant, creation. You get the idea. It's a good exercise. Uh, if you need a little help, go to Wikipedia. But see what you can do on your own. Can you sharpen one another? It can actually be a wonderful exchange and a good way of thinking in terms of what we have become accustomed to from biblical literacy. Now, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, we can summarize by several received and established references from the historic Christian lexicon. Here's some I want you to consider because we're going to look at these in the exposition as we go through uh, portion by portion of uh, the Gospel of Mark. The first is sin-fallen world. Sin-fallen world. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus came into this sin-fallen world. And we've been talking about the Gospel, straight talk about Jesus Christ, the beginning of the Gospel. But in order to understand and better, and better to put in relief the gospel, which you know means what? Good news. Let us never forget when we use these words, when we've adopted them from Scripture, the Evangelion, the, the gospel as we call it, it means good news. Good news from heaven in a sin-fallen world because a sin-fallen world is bad news. And we need to keep it in proper perspective. We hear a lot about fake news and this news and that. Beloved, we have got to keep things straight. And the first thing is bad news of a sin-fallen world. And we don't start redefining sin. We're going to talk more about that as well. 
The next one of these is divine providence. Now, I know you hear a lot about divine providence, but there's more to it. Here's what I want you to see in the bigger scope and picture of things. Divine providence integral to the salvation of the world. Because how do we often think of divine providence in a very limited way? You know how we think of divine providence? We think of divine providence as God is my personal fixer. God's going to fix things. And that's when I call out to him and when I pray to him in a time of distress or trouble. Uh, Elder Brown was just praying now, praying sincerely and devotedly for God's help in a time of trouble. God is our fixer, but we've got to see it as more than that. We've got to move beyond that. We've got to grow up. And we need to see that this is integral to the salvation of the world. Rather than thinking of God or limiting your thoughts to God as your personal fixer, I want to ask you to consider this. Consider that you are a chosen thread in the tapestry of redemption. Think of you that way. That God is working it all together. And God is working you into the fabric of his history and purpose of redemption. Can you think of yourself as a chosen thread? Now I know we have to be careful about extending that too far because I want to think of myself as a chosen golden thread. But maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm a green thread. I love the analogy of looking at the back of a tapestry. The reverse side of a tapestry is just a tangle of threads. But the obverse is a beautiful, magnificent scene. You are a chosen thread in the tapestry of redemption. I remember vividly when I was in university, I got introduced to B.B. Warfield. Warfield was one of the last uh, Presbyterian world-class scholars and faithful minister and preacher of the Word of God. He wrote in defense of the inspiration and authority of the Bible. He wrote in defense of Christ, the Son of God, against Christless Christianity and the rise of German rationalism and the effects upon undermining confidence in the Word of God. He was a a tremendous faithful preacher and trainer of preachers at Old Princeton. And there's a collected volume of his sermons entitled, the Savior of the World. I love those sermons. I love when I came into contact with that book because I had been very limited and, and thought in terms of personal salvation and, and of escape from the world and such things and escape from hell. And I'm not saying those things aren't true, but it opened for me a greater scope, the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Have we lost sight of that? The next is progressive revelation in Holy Scripture. We're going to encounter that here uh, as exemplified in Mark. Of course, it's the whole Scriptures themselves are the progressive revelation uh, of, of God's giving us the record that he would have us know. So when we talk about progressive revelation of Holy Scripture, we're talking about the story. We, we like stories. And God has given us his purposed salvation of the world in a story. We call it his story, and it is history, the history of redemption. All else in history is subservient to that. I, I like history. I'm in, in, interested in history. Sometimes I get very involved in history, and I think there's a great value and benefit from history, but only with a little h, because it's his story in the history of redemption that is primary. And progressive revelation of Scripture gives us that 
We were talking about it in Sunday school this morning about how we are able to see a bigger scope and a wider value from the whole counsel of Scripture. For example, when the opening verses of uh, Genesis start with Hebrew plurals of majesty, we are right to fuller understand them in terms of the Trinity. Uh, We were talking about it in terms of Isaiah's glimpse of the glory of God and the angelic proclamation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that superlative expression of the the thrice declaration of the holiness of God. But it is right for us to reflect upon that in the wonder of the Holy Trinity. We're not reading into Scripture. We're reading the whole of Scripture when we do that. And so we are to value and improve upon the progressive revelation of of, of, of Holy Scripture, of His story of redemption. And then we'll find in Mark chapter 8 the predictive prophecy terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel. I love this part because I am so dismayed and distraught, and you've heard me talk about it a lot of times, in the the preoccupation that the visible church has or uh, the broad uh, Christianity, cultural Christianity has this preoccupation with sensationalizing speculative eschatology. That is not what we're talking about in terms of predictive uh, prophecy. What we have given us and interpreted for us and validated for us in Holy Scripture is God's foretelling the things that came to be, validating all of His Word to us, assuring us that His Word is true, that all the promises of God are yes and amen, so be it, in Christ Jesus. And we don't give ourselves over to preoccupation with speculative eschatology. What we rather do as we embrace the promised gospel of God in the consummation for the glory of God. And that's the the last of the things we'll see and why I read the conclusion of Mark chapter 8 this morning is that the predictive prophecy terminating in Christ's new covenant gospel gives us the promise of the gospel, the promise of the consummation to the glory of God. And beloved, you are called to faith. It is my Responsibility. It is my burden to urge you to faith in remembering these things. These references mean more than a shared educated knowledge. We can share uh, 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 knowledge about it. We can talk about the fallen world, sin fallen world, the bad news. We can talk about how scripture progressively reveals God's plan of redemption, his story of redemption. So uh, you can be educated to know these things. But... Mark chapter 8 brings them together for us in the context of Jesus' public ministry and teaching, challenging us as Christian believers that the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world always demands biblically defined faith. Biblically defined faith. I'm trying to be precise in calling you and challenging you and admonishing you. People talk about faith. James says, you can't tell someone they don't have faith. The the devils believe there is one God. It's not about faith. It's about biblically defined faith that unlocks for us the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world. It's beyond intellect and it's it's beyond emotion. Those are often pitted against one another. It's a silly argument. Now understand there are problems that come from over-intellectualizing or becoming... uh, Uh, proud and arrogant 
even doctrinaire in terms of our intellect. And there's also a difficulty and a problem with those who want to just emote. We come to church just to let go of our feelings and to have a catharsis of our own personal Jesus. But I'm telling you that biblically defined faith unlocks the gospel paradox for us and it's beyond intellect and it is beyond emotion. Now, let me remind you, and you've got the notes before you this morning, but I think this is valuable. Uh, if you want to talk to me afterward and say, you know, I think we've heard enough of the review. Um, we can talk about it, but I'm not going to listen to you. Uh, so I think the review is important to go from chapter 1 now back up to chapter 8. I want you to see the progression of what we've been hearing in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 1 began with the Gospel beginning. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. He is uniquely the source of the gospel. And then on in chapter 1, the gospel claims this world, this sin-fallen world for the kingdom of God. And the gospel campaign begins. Do you remember how the gospel campaign began? It began with Jesus' assault mission against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then we move to chapter 2. As the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has authority on earth. And what he claimed in chapter 2 was authority on earth to do what? To forgive sin. Chapter 3, as the gospel source being uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ creates the new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. That included even his earthly family. Remember, they came to him and they wanted to take him away. They said, he's lost his mind. But Jesus hadn't lost his mind. There was the need and there continues to be the need of the supernatural transformation to be adopted, to be born again into the family of God. A new covenant family of God by a supernatural salvation. That is of the essence of the gospel and what we must always be preaching. Chapter 4, as the gospel source being uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. And what does he do in chapter 4? He mediates for us the mysteries of the kingdom of of heaven. He is creator. He is the uncreated God. He is the go-between. And he tells us what the kingdom of God is. The beautiful parables that he used that we might know the heavenly realities and the heavenly truths of the kingdom of God. Chapter 5, as the gospel source being uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this natural world and the supernatural world. And we saw Jesus' encounter being specified there in chapter 4. I even mentioned it to you last week. Uh, in time, Jesus looped back around because he was asked to leave that land. When he healed and cast out the many demons and sent them into the herd of swine, when there was over 2,000 pigs that then ran off and drowned, and the people said, we don't want you here. We want you to leave. But Jesus left one witness there. Remember who it was? He begged him three times, let me come with you, let me come with you, let me come with you. Jesus said, no, you stay here and you tell your family, you tell the, your neighbors, you tell the people here of the compassion the Lord has had on you. And sometime later, Jesus loops back around as we come to the end of chapter 7. And what happens this time when Jesus comes to that land? They come out to meet him in droves. And he heals them and he saves them. And he manifests the power of the gospel the good news in the bad world. And then chapter 5, 
I'm sorry, chapter 6. Chapter 6, the gospel conflict in this sinful world against unbelief, disbelief, false belief, and weak belief. This even included Jesus' own disciples. But saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. That's why we're to keep preaching it. That's why we're preaching the gospel beginning, the straight talk about Jesus Christ. When we say the gospel beginning, we're talking about all that it encompasses. It's source. Jesus is the source of the good news. Chapter 7, which we finished up last week, the gospel purifies from the corruption of external man-made religious traditions of self-righteous rules and rituals. And the, the gospel clarifies the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. This has given us an object lessons. And the contest that Jesus had between the scribes and elders and the traditions of the elders. And this self-righteousness from law works that misleads and whether it's old covenant law works or man-made works good works the same issue is in contest with God's righteousness that is by grace faith then and now and so we come to chapter 8 and here's what we'll see in chapter 8 I'll give you just an overview of where we're going chapter 8 is the gospel paradox The gospel paradox in this fallen world demands faith and divine providence integral to the salvation of the world. Yeah, there there are things the world doesn't understand. There are challenges to us that can only be resolved by faith because there seems to be contradictions from what we see and what we're told to believe. But the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith. It demands faith of you. Faith in divine providence integral to the salvation of the world. This is the history of redemption. It's his story. And then to unlock and to resolve the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world, faith is demanded. Biblically defined faith and the progressive revelation recorded in Holy Scripture. Jesus will emphasize that for us and demonstrate it to us. The gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world to be resolved demands biblically defined faith for you and for me as believers in the predictive prophecy of God. God tells us what's going to happen, but it terminates in Christ's new covenant gospel. You want to know what's going to happen in the future? I'm going to tell you to look back at the gospel. Terminating in Christ and what Christ said. Hey, I'm coming again. I don't doubt that. I I will not... Be silent about that. But I'm not going to be drawn down into foolish speculations that get us off track and remove our focus from the prophecies that have been predicted and have terminated in Christ's new covenant gospel. That's what he tells us to be shouting from the housetops. What does he say? Look, no man knows the hour of the time. When the Son of Man may return. Don't try to scheme these things. Don't try to to, um, sensationalize and uh, maybe you can stir up and scare people. Or maybe that will get attention and more people will come and want to hear and buy your next book on the speculative eschatology. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. So the predictive prophecy where we're to focus and what biblical faith demands of us is that it terminates in the new covenant gospel. That's where it finds its meaning. And then 
The gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands a biblically defined faith in the promised gospel consummation to the glory of God. You want to know what eschatology I'm going to preach? I'm going to preach the eschatology that Jesus preached. That he's coming back with the holy angels for the glory of God. Are you ready? That is the gospel proclamation of the consummation to the glory of God. So here's the breakdown in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 4,000 people. Now we don't know, uh, presumably this is 4,000 men uh, plus women and children, like we had 5,000 men plus women and children. So uh, I would assume that may be the same thing here. But 4,000 plus, Jesus miraculously feeds 4,000 plus people in Gentile territory. Don't miss that. This is important to us. He further demonstrates God's providence integral to the salvation of the world. So we'll come back to verses 1 through 10 as we begin to to expound each section of chapter 8. Then we'll go on to verses 11 through 26. Jesus' healing of a blind man. But he heals this blind man in a peculiar way. It's not uh, described for us in any other healings of Jesus. We don't know. He may have done it uh, this way with others. But there is one reference that we have in Scripture to Jesus healing this blind man in two stages. And here's why he does it as it's given to us in the Gospel of Mark. It provides another Gospel lesson about the need to understand the progressive revelation of Scripture in order to avoid the spread of false teaching. So I want you to look carefully at that context. Verses 11 through 26, and why Mark chooses out of the many healings of Jesus that Jesus healed this man, and the only record we have of this being done in this way, and that is in two stages, in the context of the need for progressive revelation, for seeing it all, to understand and perceive. This is what Jesus says to his disciples over and over again. Don't you understand? Don't you put it together? Don't you perceive? Did you take note? We'll even come to that when Jesus says, look, when I multiplied the bread and fed the 5,000, when I multiplied the bread and fed the 4,000, how many each time did you take um, leftovers? And you're worried because you don't think you brought enough bread in the boat? And Jesus, exasperated in his human nature, looks at him and says, What are you not putting together? Have you not taken note of this? Have you forgot it already? Talks about Jesus' disciples. Sometimes it's the twelve. Sometimes it's a broader group of disciples, of followers of Jesus. Remember, with Judas' defection, they needed to choose someone to take his place. And they said someone who had been with them from the time of Jesus' baptism until the time of his ascension. See, there was a broader company of disciples that followed Jesus than just the twelve. And within the twelve, sometimes Jesus, which we'll see in chapter 9, which is coming up. Remember I told you about the gospel party? Chapter 9, he takes Peter, James, and John. So there is a broader group. And Jesus says to his disciples, when are you going to connect the dots? When are you going to take note and remember these things and build upon them? So Jesus miraculously feeding the 4,000 plus people in Gentile territory further demonstrates God's providence integral to the salvation of the world. And Jesus healing the blind man in stages is another gospel object lesson about the need to understand and to 
to put together, to take note of the progressive revelation of Scripture in order to avoid the spread of false teaching. And then we'll also come to verses 27 through 33. Jesus commending Peter's Christocentric confession and then consequently rebuking Peter's confusion from satanic influence. This establishes the gospel hermeneutic. This is our interpretive method of Scripture. And that is that predictive prophecy terminates in Christ's new covenant fulfillment. That's important. In these days, as I've already mentioned to you, my dismay over speculative eschatology and the preoccupation and the sensationalizing of that and where we need to keep focused on the gospel. We need to keep center, front and center, that predictive prophecy terminates in Christ's new covenant fulfillment. It didn't end with his death. <laughs> Because from his death comes his resurrection. And after his resurrection comes his ascension. And by his ascension comes the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the validating of the new covenant. And from the new covenant accomplishment comes the promise of consummation. Jesus promised gospel consummation. Verses 34 through 38. It is to the glory of God. And this is how the gospel paradox is only resolved by biblical faith. I hope that you will listen carefully as we go through the exposition of chapter 8, and particularly as we come to the conclusion, because there are a lot of confused voices out there. Uh, there are those who turn on the TV, they turn on the radio, they hear these voices, they hear these who are uh, stirring up and constantly cra- uh, claiming and reevaluating and resetting the dates and saying that this event and that event in terms of human history becomes a speculation for their eschatology of what's going to happen. And I never hear any gospel at all in that. But I want to tell you, when Jesus gives it to us, and he does project us to the end, there will be a consummation. There will be a great day of the Lord. Whether we are living when it happens or not. I don't know if I'll be alive. Maybe in the time of my grandchildren. Maybe it'll be in generations hence. But God has not fallen asleep. God has not forgotten His promise. God is not slack concerning His promise as people think of slackness. Oh, He's forgotten. He hasn't forgotten. He's weaving His tapestry of the gospel, of the good news that we need to hear in this sin-fallen world because that's bad news. It's bad news for every generation until Jesus comes again. And therefore, we must preach the whole gospel, the good news that encompasses all of the promises of God with the promised consummation to the glory of God. Do we want to hear about the glory of God? It's challenging, isn't it? I'm going to give you a a, a challenge about hearing the glory of God. Is there someone you love in this world, in this earth, in this family? Is there someone you love, but you doubt their salvation? And I don't mean that you're sitting in the place of God. I mean, there's somebody you love, but they do not profess, they do not claim, they do not... um, identify as a Christian, but you love them. Does the consummation of the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ overrule your emotions to the point that even God's glory is greater than those you love who may not be saved? All I can tell you is that humbles me.
It breaks my heart. It crushes me, as a matter of fact. It crushes me. But the glory of God is paramount. And God will be glorified. And the gospel has not been hidden. And so I hope that you will feel the sense of urgency that Mark gives us here in chapter 8. Remember I told you how Mark uses the word immediate, straightway, over and over and over again? And it's not just an adverb of time. Sometimes it's an adverb of manner. I think that they actually interconnect. And from that, what I say is, beloved, there's urgency in our worshiping God. Now, when I say there's urgency in our worshiping God, I don't mean that we are frantic or that we have some humorous that's, that's driving us out of doubt or uncertainty. That's the confusion, that's the confusion of the flesh. When I say there is an urgency about our worshiping God, it's an urgency of desire. Do you have that kind of urgency to proclaim the gospel and to acknowledge the priority of God even in the consummation of all things that his glory is paramount? God comes first. That's what Jesus is driving at. And you see... That's how biblically defined faith resolves the gospel paradox. The world doesn't get it. Our flesh doesn't get it. But the spirit is greater than the flesh. As a part of that urgency, Jesus said we're to remember his death till he comes again. So he's given us this uh, urgency in our worship. By telling us that we take this bread and we take this cup in His name, as these rich symbols tell us that Jesus came into this sin-fallen world, but that the sin-fallen world and its bad news could not uh, defeat Him. And by this bread and by this cup, we're reminded of the good news that He has overcome the world. 